The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. The children's rhyme begins, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. Probably know that one. In my boyhood book, it had a picture of a little egg-like figure with a bow tie sitting high up on a stone wall. And then the next frame, fallen down and, and crashed, shattered into many little eggshell pieces. And they looked high and low throughout the land to see who or what might be able to, to put back together the effects of this tragic fall. But all the king's horses and all the king's men and all the philosophers of the realm and all the educators and all the psychologists and all the religious leaders and all the venture capitalists and all the humanitarians and the social activists and the politicians and on and on all tried and still try to put him back together and fail. Not a one can do anything about it. Pick up any copy of any newspaper on any day, read any section, just about any story. And you will find evidence of a tragic fall and brokenness. Sometimes even shatteredness. You can't even identify the little pieces. It's such a tragic story. Sometimes you read of blatant evil. Perhaps it will only be amoral disease or, or weakness or failing. Sometimes you read of human pride and arrogance that leads to conflict and war or perhaps to ugly triumph. Sorrow and anger and frustration everywhere you read, and that's just the newspaper. Look at your own life, the life of your family. It marks you too. It does. And there is nothing in the world that anybody can do about it. Temporary fixes, band-aids on the, on the surface, of course, sure. Full resolution of the problem, of course not. No, none. But by grace, God has done something. God has sent someone to fix everything. And we must be very careful, very careful how we respond to that one, that we not hold him off either in totality like this or, or, or partially like this, wandering over here. We must be very careful how we respond to this one. The middle of Acts chapter 2 urges upon us complete and total surrender to him, a full giving over of ourselves to this one, the only hope for brokenness in the world. May God give grace to you this morning, awakening grace, so that you see this, so that you'll see him as the only hope for our fallen and broken and shattered and crooked and evil world, that you see him as the only hope and that you'll give yourself to him. Perhaps for the first time, or perhaps again in new ways, ways you've been holding him off. Let me read our passage, Acts chapter 2. Coming in the middle of Peter's sermon, I'll read verses 22 to 41. Acts 2, 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. 
Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Before we move back through this passage, remember the context. Last week we saw the Spirit poured out at Pentecost with the believers there each declaring the, the wonder, wonderful works of God in many different languages. People were all seeing that, and then Peter stands up to explain it by quoting the prophet Joel. And in Joel, what we see is that there's a, a package of how the last days were supposed to go. He begins that by saying, in the last days, it's an important little phrase there, because the last days are, are the end. In Jewish thinking, we're living in a time, and then there's the last days, it's the end. And there's a package about what that looks like. You can see it there in that, in that passage, uh, the quote from Joel, verse 18, in those days, at the end, I will pour out my spirit, signified by prophesying, people seeing and hearing of God and then speaking of God. And then verse 19, I will show wonders in the heaven and, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and smoke and darkness, physical upheaval on the earth. And verse 20, for the day of the Lord comes, that great and magnificent day, and all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
That's Joel's picture of this, this package, spirit poured out, the earth in turmoil, the day of judgment, those who call on the Lord are saved, those who don't aren't. And what are they seeing right now? It's Peter speaking. They're seeing the spirit poured out. And these devout men pay attention because here's the package and the first part of it is right in front of my eyes. This must be the end. This must be the last days. Speak and explain this to us. We're listening. You too must see the judgment as real and coming, as imminent, right around the corner. God has made it so that the day of judgment has begun, but it's not yet completed. We are in the last days. We know the Spirit's been poured out. It's begun. The package is partially here, but not fully here. We don't see the earth in this great turmoil, the Lord descending. We don't see that yet. So we're in this period, and it's as if we're walking down a street, and, and the final day is right around the corner. Every corner you come to, that might be the one. You don't know. So hear what this means for you. Listen. It's imminent. When will the Lord return? I don't know. We're in this last day. Is it 10.30 in the morning or 10.30 at night? I don't know. Will you die this afternoon? I don't know. But his judgment is imminent. Listen to what this means then. Peter goes on to explain. And immediately he moves to Jesus. Hear this, verse 22. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God. Jesus was held up and displayed for you. Look. Look at him. And Peter then proceeds to preach about his life and miracles. Verse 22, his death. 23, his resurrection. Verses 24 to 33, his exaltation. Receiving and then giving the Spirit out. 24 to, or 33 to 35. And there, we'll talk about that more in, in a few moments, but there are a few details in this passage that we need to look at. Look how Peter describes the cross in verse 23. Who caused the cross? Who? God did. That is abundantly clear. Repeated twice in that passage, a double emphasis. Jesus was delivered up to death not by the Sanhedrin, but by God, according to his definite plan and his foreknowledge. God did this. Please don't misunderstand it. Many Christians today, many of us, mistakenly believe something about foreknowledge, God's knowledge beforehand. We kind of understand it like this, that God knows beforehand because he looked ahead, saw what we would choose, and then rewound, so to speak, and then planned it that way. This fits in perfectly with how we, by default, put ourselves to the center of everything making us the deciders and God the implementer of our decision, fits in perfectly. We're the ones in charge. He's the responder, the one who brings our will to pass. That's very common for us today, and it's the exact opposite of what the Bible teaches. And to get that straight, God's foreknowledge is determinative, not responsive. It determines what comes because he planned it beforehand 
God planned. That's why he knows, and that's why we act. Think about this. God did not discover how he would save people when he learned that we would reject Jesus. He didn't look ahead and say, oh, they're going to kill him. I, I can work with that. Let me step back and plan that in. No. We rejected Jesus because it had to be, according to God's plan, that he was needing a blood sacrifice to atone for sin. So he planned it, he knew it, and that's what we did. And the guilt falls directly on human beings. You crucified and killed him by the hands of lawless men. All the responsibility, the guilt for it, falls on us. And God planned it. There are some deep waters here. I'm just trying to take a little dip in this morning here. But there are some glorious, deep waters here. There is such a thing in the Bible as human freedom, as human free will. It's there. It's true. The catch is that as soon as I, I say that, I need to define it. Human free will is the freedom to choose as you will. We all have wills that are inclined decisively against God. So all God does is is God plans to have the Christ crucified and presents him to us in wonder and in splendor, full of miracles, all good and holy and right. And because our wills are bent always against holiness and righteousness and goodness and God, we reject him and crucify him. And God says, that's exactly what I planned. And I plan to raise him from the dead. If you want to talk more about that later, That's great. I'm going to move on. And I plan to raise him from the dead because death can't hold him. Someone once paraphrased this verse by saying, death, the grave, can no more hold Jesus than a pregnant woman in labor can hold a baby. She can fight it, but she cannot stop it. Death cannot hold him because of who he is. He's God. And Peter emphasizes something slightly different. Can't hold him because he's God and because the Bible said it couldn't hold him. And the Bible is always true. Death couldn't hold him for, he says, David wrote a thousand years ago, referring to Psalm 16, look especially at at verse 27 there, that he will not abandon my soul to Hades or Sheol, the place of the dead. It's not exactly like hell. It's the place where the dead go. Think of the grave He will not abandon my soul to the grave or let his Holy One rot. See corruption. Peter's reasoning, if he's not going to leave him there and let him rot, he is first going to let him go there, though. He's going to die, but he will bring him back. And gang, we can walk right across town to David's tomb and look at his bones. This is not about David. This is a knockdown argument in his Jewish setting. David wrote this about the Holy One who would not be left in the grave, but David's in the grave, rotted, corrupted. He's got to be talking about somebody else, the Messiah. And this one, this Jesus, is the one. He came back from the dead, and the 12 of us saw it. The 12 of us are claiming to be his followers, preaching in his name. And what's happened to us? He's poured out the Spirit on us, as you see. He wouldn't do that with a liar, with a pretender, but he's done it with us. This is the truth. 
Now, as he comes to his conclusion, so then be clear about this. God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. He talks about him being made Lord and Christ. That might throw a few of us for a loop there. He doesn't say that he made him God. Jesus never became God. Always was God. God come down to earth in the flesh, but he became, he was made Lord, that is Master King, and Messiah, Christ, Savior, Deliverer. During his whole time here on earth, Jesus lives like this, humble as a servant, so humble that he lets his creatures abuse him and kill him. So humble that he always responds in obedience to the Father's wishes and commands. He prays in John 17, Father, would you, would you restore me back to the glory that I always had with you before anything else existed? Would you restore me? And the Father says, yes, I will restore you. Come here and sit at my right hand in judgment over everything. I will make you Lord and Christ the deliverer. Before he goes to the cross, he can't deliver anybody. I mean, the deliverer at the cross. He made him Lord and Christ and they were cut to the heart because Peter's next statement is and you killed him. We live in the last days. Those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved and we have just learned that Lord is spelled J-E-S-U-S and you killed him. What are we to do? They're pierced. Follow the argument through. What are we to do? And Peter responds, repent and be baptized in the name J-E-S-U-S for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Be baptized? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins? Is baptism a necessary part of the gospel? That's what Peter seems to say, and some people teach that, that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Some even teach that you have to be baptized in their church in order to be saved. This is not true. There's a a lot of way to talk it through. The easiest way is to look right ahead to chapter 3, glance over at chapter 3, verse 19, where Peter is again preaching to Jewish people in Jerusalem. And there he says, Repent. Here's his closing call. Repent, therefore, and turn. This defines repent. It means to turn. Repent, therefore, and turn. Your sins will be wiped away. Nothing about baptism. But if baptism is a critical element of the salvation, of the salvation message, such that if you're not baptized, you can't be saved, then Peter lied. Your sins will be blotted out if you're not baptized. If you need to be baptized, that's not true. He preached a false gospel that can't save anybody. Of course, we know that's not true. Baptism is not an essential part of the gospel. You don't have to be baptized to be saved. So what's going on in chapter 2 then? Peter is calling people to something. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality. And he's calling them, take a public stand. We live in a culture, he says. Part of the reason we have a difficult time understanding this is we don't live in this type of culture, but... Peter, we live in a culture where publicly standing with Jesus will get you imprisoned and might cost you your life. Leave that crooked generation and come stand over here with us. Cross this line with your body right now. Walk over here. 
Don't try to stay over there and say, in my heart I believe, but I'm going to stay here with these folks so as it won't cost me anything. That doesn't work. Come over, he says. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. Own him as your own. Take him on. I heard an illustration one time. It brought this home for me. Um, A man who was visiting some Christians in the Soviet Union before the fall of communism went to a church. And in the church, they had a baptism that day. And and the baptism folks were dressed in white. And one by one, they went up to to be immersed in water. And a man popped up from the front row and they they stopped, took their picture. He sat down. they, They got dunked. And this went on a few times in the American, thinking like an American, said, oh, so is that for like the church bulletin board or the, or the, uh, the monthly publication or whatever, the bulletin? He said, oh, no, that guy's from the KGB. He takes their picture to put it in their file. Does he take everybody's picture? Oh, no, just the people who get baptized, because those are the people who are for real about this. We want to know, KGB says, who the baptized people are, not the people who claim to believe the people who actually stand with Jesus against us. That's the kind of thing Peter's getting at. Come over here or stay over there. One of the two. Don't try to mix. If you come over here, you're forgiven. And the Lord called 3,000 that day and they crossed over and were saved. There's a lot in that passage. There's a lot there. As I try to to summarize it and boil it down into a main point that I can put into a sentence, here's how I see it. There's a main point for this morning. Jesus is Lord and Christ. That's Peter's punchline in his sermon. Jesus is Lord and Christ. So, give yourself to him in totality. Don't hold him off. Don't give yourself partially to him. Give yourself to him in totality. He is Lord and Christ. God's eternal plan of redemption has always been centered on one person, Jesus. Here he is, shining forth like the sun. See him, behold him, give yourself to him. I'm going to approach this in three stages. First, God has clearly displayed him as Lord in Christ. He's shown him forth. This was one of the key themes of the book of John. Remember the jewel held up so that we could look at all the different angles of him? It's a key theme of John. It's where Peter begins today. This Jesus, the guy from Nazareth, a real living human being right there, that one was attested, displayed, held up, shown off by God. So get that straight, men of Israel and Men and women and boys and girls of Salt Lake, fix this on your minds and in your hearts. This Jesus held up. How specifically? Well, Peter begins to move into the life and miracles of Jesus. That's how Jesus is shown off. Mighty works, wonders, and signs. When Jesus showed up, it was in a whirlwind of power. No other religious person ever can write that kind of resume. Not even other people in the Bible. All the stuff he did... We saw some of this in John as well. Signs. They're not just random power displays. They're signs. They're power displays carrying a message. Jesus wades into the suffering and broken humanity and heals the lame man. Why? Because he has compassion on him and also because that's what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. Heal the lame. 
a sign, this one's the Messiah. Jesus gives sight to a man born blind, a sign that in this one, spiritual blindness is overcome. Jesus gives life to a man who's been dead for four days, a sign that in this one, death is overcome. He feeds people on multiple occasions, multiplying loaves of bread, a sign that in this one, our souls are nourished. He walked on water, a sign that this one is the Lord over all of the creation. He overcomes the laws of nature because he made them. Signs, constantly. And the Bible finally has to just give up and say there's not enough time, ink, or paper to write down all that he did. Jesus being held up and displayed. And he showed it again in his startling resurrection from the dead. Look at this one, he says. Rejected by people, but not on the contrary, I approve of him. Lifts him up. This is a key one for his Jewish audience in particular because they have a really hard time getting their minds around crucified Messiah. Those two terms are contradictions. They don't fit together. But he argues through the Psalms that in fact it's been predicted that he would die and be raised. And we know it's not talking about David. It's talking about his great son, the Messiah. Lifted up, raised out of the grave, raised up on high, and reigning. That's the point of Psalm 110. David there writes about two lords. This is a very frequently quoted psalm in the New Testament because it's so interesting that there are two lords there. And David's not one of them. They're both lords over David, but the Messiah, Jesus argues, was supposed to be a descendant of David. How is he his lord? Two lords, the Lord said to my Lord, come up here and sit on my throne at my right hand. But we know, Israel, that the Lord our God is one. What do you do with that? Two and one. Sounds a lot like in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Two and one, add in the Spirit, you have three and one. And this Son God the Father has said to the Son, come up here and sit, reign, rule. He's brought him into his presence. Like Daniel said, he's brought him into the presence of the the ancient of days and has been given dominion, rule, power, and authority over all things and all people everywhere. He was humbled in the form of a servant and he's now lifted up stretching his power even now over his enemies, but one day over everything, everywhere. This Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, King and Lord, and you killed him. You dared to lift up your heart and your hands and strike this one. It gets us to our second point. We have all rejected Jesus. All of us. I say, you killed him. And and some here might be tempted to say, it says it twice, yes, Peter in verse 23 and 46 says you, but clearly he's referring to the Jews that he's speaking to, and he's talking about physically crucifying him. 
That wasn't me, okay? You know, I wasn't there. That was a little while ago. I didn't do that. Don't talk to me like that. Hold on a second. He's speaking to thousands of people. A good number of them weren't in town 50 days ago when this happened either. If 3,000 people came to faith, there were a lot more than that there. Far more people. Two people, perhaps, grabbed hammer and nail and actually did the deed. A few others were in authority over it and made it happen. A few others were in the crowds. But thousands and thousands of people, a good number of them weren't there. They could well have said, you're not talking to me either. I didn't do it either. I wasn't even in town at that time. But none of them argue that. Because all of them know what he's getting at. Struck to the heart, they realize, I didn't physically do it, but I share the very same attitude. The very same no attitude. The very same holding him off, rejecting him, and turning elsewhere. They did something about it that I didn't, but I'm right there with them, and so are we. We all, every single one of us, Christian and non-Christian alike here, we all rejected Jesus as Lord and Christ, and still do even today. All of us have hearts that hold off God's plan of redemption. There are 10,000 religions in the world. Only one of them is true. 9,999 of them are false. Human beings' attempts to make a system according to my plans and my desires, because I don't like that one. And as soon as that one becomes a little less nebulous and begins to focus on a single person named Jesus, then Jesus is the one that we reject. You know this is true. Walk into any cafe or any restaurant anywhere, you can talk about some religious things and spiritual things and going to church. Start talking about Jesus and see how that goes. You know it's true. People get more tense. Start doing this a little bit more. At the name of Jesus, you're not even talking about anything in depth, just at his name, people start. That's the way it is. We all are like that. Christians as well. Now, obviously I know, if you're a Christian, you haven't done this in totality, you, you have embraced him in some way, you've drawn him near in some way, absolutely. And he lives in you and he's changing you, that's true. There's something glorious at work in you. However, we all know, we all know that we still sin. We still hold him off in certain ways. Sometimes those ways are blatant. You say this, no, not today, not this week, not this month. I'm going to go this way. It, sometimes it's blatant, just a rejection of Jesus or perhaps a refashioning of Jesus into a Jesus that I like. And then I follow that one, which of course is a rejection of this Jesus. We do it blatantly sometimes. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you have to understand this is where you live. I'm not saying this to you for my own benefit or anything. I'm trying to recruit you to our church or something like that. I'm saying it to you, it's all about you and your relationship to God. You have to see this is where you live. Jesus is over there and you've done this. Perhaps you're trying to be religious and righteous in some other ways, but not in Jesus' way. This Jesus. You hold him off and be very careful about how you respond to him. 
There's only one hope here. It's him. Be very careful how you respond. Don't hold him off blatantly or subtly. If you're a Christian, you hold him off blatantly sometimes, but probably a little more commonly, we hold him off subtly or partially. On a Sunday morning, we're like this. And by Tuesday afternoon, we're, we're really we're more like this. Never really did this intentionally, but you just kind of drifted. And pretty soon you've forgotten where you were and what you were about, what you're supposed to be built on. Maybe somewhere along the way you said, ah, you know, I, I understand this, but I can't do that right now. That's just too high of a, of a cost or too, too strict of a calling or, or whatever. And so, ah, a little bit, I'll hold that off a little bit. But not, I mean, I want this part. Maybe you've done that. Subtly or, or partially, you hold him off. That's still idolatry and rebellion. A rejecting of him. And Christians need to hear that just as much as non-Christians do. One of the greatest barriers for non-Christians is Christians. Let's be real about that. We are supposed to be one of the strongest testimonies, and we are one of the worst far too often. We talked about it this morning in a life training class. We're dissecting what it means to, to repent, and we want to be sure that we share a correct gospel repentance with non-Christians. And then somebody mentioned, uh, yeah, well, what about us? Oh, yeah, you repent like that. I'm going to live over here in another way. That doesn't work. People see through that. We need to hear this. We cannot hold him off. Resist him in any way, any way whatsoever. I have a difficult balance to strike here. A difficult balance because you killed him is Peter's blunt tone in this sermon. Is it not? Be, let's be really clear about that. And he twice accuses him of that. He's real, in your face, clear. And so I have to say that. I have to say it like that. Because perhaps seeing your sin and being shocked by it is what you need to be moved. There is a king and you are in rebellion against him. You cannot do that. This is the last days. His judgment is imminent. Don't fool with him. Be very careful. And just say it like that. And the balance is that I also need to say it with sorrow. If you're a parent, you, you know how it is when you're dealing with kids. Sometimes you've got to say, stop putting that pencil in your sister's eye. And other times you have to say, go to bed so that you can rest and get over your cold. You're killing yourself here. You've got to say both of those things. You know that as a parent. God knows that. Some of you need to hear, and some of you need to hear, oh, do you realize that your life is broken and there's only one hope and you're turning away from him to your own detriment? Christians and non-Christians alike, we resist his authority, and what does this do to you? The signs are messages in power. He gives life. He gives sight. He sustains. 
And we turn away from that and say, I'll remain blind and hungry and dying. Thank you. You have, you've been given eyes to, to see glory that will stun you and sustain you forever and ever and ever. And you say, no thanks. That should cause sorrow. It should break your heart as you look at your friends and your neighbors, as you look at yourself. Some of you I know, I don't know everybody here, but some of you I know, some of you I know fairly well, some of your stories I know. Odds are, if I don't know all of your stories, some of you still fall in these categories. Think about this. Some of you, your marriages are terrible, aren't they? Some of you, your financial pressures kill you every day such that you are physically ill, aren't they? Aren't they killing you? Some of you cannot get along with people, but you're always clashing with them because you say hurtful things and you're proud. And they say them back and so you respond. And nobody likes to be around you. Isn't that true? Some of you worry all day long. Some of you cower when you should be bold. Some of you go lazy when you should act. And on the other hand, maybe it's not nearly so dramatic. Maybe it's just that you're really, really, really busy and really, really, really stressed and tired and you're wondering, where and when can I lay my heart down and rest? I need that. Either way, something's wrong. Your life is broken into pieces. And you keep looking for a solution somewhere out there, but all the king's horses and all the king's men, and nothing else can fix it. Not more money, not more work, not more sex, not more effective time management. Not better counseling, not more compassion from people. Nothing can fix it. Only one, and you're turning away from him. So the difficult balance is that this must come with thunder and with lightning because it is rebellion and it must come with tears because it is your destruction. Which one more speaks to you? Both are true. Which one more speaks to you? Pray something does. And I pray that the thing that happens in your heart is that you begin to ask, is there anything I can do about this? Is there any chance, is there any hope? That moves us to our final point. At this point, you have to be asking the question, can anything be done or none of this is going to matter to you at all? Some people that day walked away and said, these guys are crazy, they're drunk and they're fools. A whole lot of people didn't, but some people did. And that's how it'll go here today. Some will walk out, think that guy's a fool. I wasn't drunk, but he's a fool. And I pray that though some, many, respond in some way. Is there any hope? Is there anything I can do about this? You ask that, verse 38 will give you your answer. Yes, 
Repent, immerse yourself in him, and receive the Spirit. Repent, immerse yourself in him. I'm just defining baptism. Immerse yourself in him and receive the Spirit. Verse 38, follow the flow of that verse. Repent first, he starts out with that. Turn, you're holding him off, you're going this way, you're you're chasing after something, turn and immerse yourself in Jesus. Dive in. That's what the baptism is. Baptism, here in our country, we kind of have a hard time understanding what the point of baptism is. Baptism is a public stand. It's, it's It's a me diving myself in. I'm getting into this water totally. That's why I'm explaining it here then. Dive in. Immerse yourself into him. Repent and immerse yourself for the forgiveness of sins. And you'll receive the Spirit. This is the kicker. Peter's statement, it's, it's, remember what's generated this whole preaching situation is the outpouring of the Spirit. So he really says, you can get in on this too. Repent and be baptized. He'll forgive you and he'll put you in. He'll give you the Spirit. This is where we come back to the the hope for the broken lives. Why do you have to submit to? Why do you have to repent and turn to Jesus? Submit yourself into him totally. Because he's king and Lord? Yes. There are a lot of other reasons too, but the one that, that we're focusing on here, the one that Peter emphasizes is because that's where you get the spirit. And remember what we said last week about what you, why you want the Spirit? What does the Spirit do? The Spirit is the one who comes and lives inside of a person and gives them, facilitates a personal, intimate relationship with God. How do you get a personal, intimate relationship with God? You get the Spirit. How do you get the Spirit? You come and repent and come to Christ. And He'll give you the Spirit. And the Spirit will move into you and renovate you in stunning ways. He'll open your eyes. He'll feed your soul. He'll give you life. Put it in another metaphor. Come and you get connected to Jesus and now you're like a vine and a branch and you have life-giving sap that will now flow into you and produce fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, etc. That list is not exhaustive. He'll produce Christ in you, the hope of glory. You need the Spirit for that. The Spirit, the one who puts all the pieces back together in life, growing that fruit in you. You can have it one place in Christ. Repent, come to him. Obviously, Peter is calling non-Christians, thousands of them, to come to Christ and become Christians for the very first time. That's obviously what he's saying there. So that message needs to come out here today. If you're not a Christian, I'm sure there are some people here who are not Christians today. Hear this. There is hope. There is a way to fix the broken life. There is a way to fix the broken life that you live. Only one. Only one. You have to come. I say have to, not because I'm like power hungry or something like that, because God said it. We should glory that there is a way. Not gripe that there's only one. 
There is a way to receive the Spirit and to receive life, so come to Christ. Repent. Turn away from what you chase and build your life on. Come over here and chase this one, build your life on him. That's who he's talking to, holding out hope to non-Christians. Obviously, though, most of us here today are Christians. And the same words speak to us. Repent. Repent. Even if you're only doing this, repent. Do this. Stick yourself into him fully. Yield all of your life to him. Think through your life. Think through, where have I held you off, Lord? Where do I hold you off now? Where do I say, not yet, not now, not today? Think it through. Don't skip it over. And turn, repent, come back to him. Speaks to us as well. And you will receive, not the Spirit for the first time, you will receive the Spirit filling you, that is directing and controlling you. He lives in you already if you're a Christian. But you're grieving him in some way, and you're going to let him out. So you've been caging him up, you're going to let him out, he's going to run through you and change you, produce fruit. This came home to me a couple weeks ago. I was in a a group of a, a few other Christians, and they were praying prayers of specific repentance. And I heard them pray repeatedly things like, Lord, please forgive me for X. Help me to do Y. Lord, I'm sorry that I, that I think like this. Please forgive me. Show me what's true and turn me. Father, this grieves me that this is, it's really true of me. I'm sorry. Please forgive me of that. It was almost like somebody had said, say those words specifically because I heard it repeatedly. And then it like spoke to me. I heard it almost like a voice, not really, but almost like a voice. Steve, when was the last time that you specifically said, please forgive me of something? I thought, huh, it's been a while. I'm a pretty introspective person. Do you know me or nodding? I'm a pretty introspective person. I think a lot about myself, about my sin, about my weaknesses. So I'm aware of some things, not everything, blind spots like everybody else. I'm aware of some things, but I've found that what I have been doing recently is just kind of praying, Lord, help me with that, Lord, help me with that, or trying to work harder to overcome it. And there was something helpful about saying, as I began to pray that point, Please forgive me for this. This specific thing is sin that I'm doing, that I'm thinking, ways that I function, things that I say. Jesus, forgive me. Please change this in me. Make me alert to it. I was reminded in this, in this time period a saying of an old saint who said, we must always be killing sin or sin will be killing us. And this kind of refreshed my battle against sin. And I've experienced some new life. The Spirit having new reign in me in some ways in particular. He'll do that for you too. If you turn to Him, repent, turn to Him. Confess your sin, immerse yourself in Him. He'll run new life through you with the Spirit. This Jesus is Lord and Christ and we must in totality submit to him. When we do that, 
and put the broken pieces back together. We're now going to move to communion where we think about the cross, what he's offered us. Bread and wine are signs showing us things, how he sustains us, his blood shed for our sin. So move towards that. Take a moment now and, and repent. Just think through whatever you need to repent of and, and repent. And then I'll close in a few minutes and we'll move into communion proper. Father, you call us out to make us a, a holy nation so that we can proclaim your excellencies. And I pray, Lord, you would make us a holy nation. I don't mean the nation of the United States. I mean your people here, your body. Draw us back to you, Lord, I ask. Draw many here to you in whatever way is appropriate for them at this time in their lives. Draw them to you. Build us up here, Lord. Lord, meet with us now as we celebrate communion and remember your cross. Would you be honored here in our midst? Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.